Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome. Today, I'll be chatting with Dr. Anita Patel. Dr. Patel is a pediatric critical care doctor, assistant professor, and NIH-funded researcher at Children's National Hospital in DC, in addition to being a yoga teacher. She uses her social media to show the human side of academic medicine, which she so lacked as a medical trainee with a focus on motherhood and medicine, her IVF journey, and the raw difficulties of finding balance in all of that chaos. Today, we will be chatting about COVID-19 in children, how common that is, and also about MISC, which stands for Multisystem Inflammatory Syndrome in Children. We'll be talking about what that is, what the symptoms are, when you should be seeking attention, and what your visit might be like if your child does get admitted with MISC. Let's dive right in. Good morning, Dr. Patel. How are you today? I am good. It's a good morning. I'm posted 24-hour shift and I'm ready to chat. I'm excited. We've got you at your best right now. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to us today. I know this is a topic that a lot of mothers are worried about and I'm just excited to learn from you and give some tips to our community here. Well, I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity and I'm just it's obviously very near and dear to my heart. So thank you. Thank you for asking me to be a part of this. Yes, of course. All right. So today we're going to be talking about MISC, which is multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. And so this is a condition that we are seeing, you know, a couple of weeks out from a case of COVID-19. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. Yep. Now, about how long after, you know, your child has COVID are we are we seeing this? So it's the the general period of time is two to three weeks. Now, um, you know, I say that with the caveat, um, you know, and I this is kind of what I tell every parent is that, you know, we, we have these general time periods and it's important to keep those in mind. But every single kid is unique. So Obviously, you and I are going to talk about um, signs and symptoms to watch out for. So just because your kid is a little earlier than the two to three week mark or a little later than that two to three week mark, you know, I think you should still sort of be aware um, and know that, you know, every kid is unique and they may have a slightly different time period than, than what I'll talk about. 
Yes, exactly. And so straight off the bat, I do want to just mention that, you know, obviously we know that COVID-19 is not affecting children in the way that it's affecting adults. I had actually pulled up this morning, and I don't know if your numbers are roughly the same, but I had pulled up the American Academy of Pediatrics. And I was just reading this morning that it looks like children represent about 13% of all the cases of COVID-19 as of, uh, looks like February 18th. So, you know, and I think, you know, I don't know if if this is true for you, like infants and toddlers are even probably less than that, right? Because we're probably seeing a lot of those numbers in like the teen population. Yeah, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. It's 13% of the cases. um, But I mean, I think we all have to remember that that number is, is most definitely an underestimate because you know, we're seeing that a lot of these children are asymptomatic and obviously parents are not taking their children to get randomly. Most of the time they're not getting their kids randomly tested. And I'll talk about sort of how I'm coming to that conclusion in a little bit when we talk about the MISC. But yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah, that's really interesting that you say that. And I do want to swing back to that later on too, because uh, I think a huge, one of the biggest questions in my Q&A was, you know, are we seeing this after asymptomatic cases in children? Um, Yeah, so we'll definitely touch on that. Definitely. Okay, so Let's actually let's actually talk about are are children super spreaders of COVID? Okay, so that that's a great question, and you know I think to say that they're super spreaders, I I, I think that's a hard thing to say because so the Chinese data was was suggesting that early in the pandemic, um, you know they they noted that kids obviously as as we all know from the news and I know as a pediatric ICU doctor that you know kids were not in general getting as sick but they did do some contact tracing and showed that children were really these asymptomatic spreaders now because widespread testing was so delayed in the United States and even now I mean I think it's much 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 easier obviously it's mm-hmm. it's dr- remarkably easier but it's still not you know, it's not as straightforward to get testing. So um, we don't have the data to suggest that. But, you know, I I think just from my experience taking care of all these MISC kids, you know, I I will tell you that um, most of the time the parents are saying, well, my kid was never sick. Interesting. So, you know, I think I, I do think that kids are spreading it, and I think we have a little bit of data to show that, but we don't have the same compelling data that you know came out of China early in the pandemic. So I can't say that they're the super spreaders, but I can say that they are clearly spreading it in some ways. Yeah, and you know, I know we don't know for sure, but do you have any like hypothesis as to why children are not showing symptoms nearly as much as adults? Yeah, so there there's some questions about, you know, and and this is all sort of speculation, but you know, COVID um seems to, you know, particularly bind to um certain receptors in your body and you know, they think that children the, those particular receptors um, in your body, they think that that children are those receptors are a little bit immature um, in children. So there's a potential hypothesis that because those receptors are immature 
and the the SARS-CoV-2 virus is not just binding to those receptors to the same level, and that's why they're not manifesting in general more severe symptoms of acute COVID-19 disease. That's so interesting. Uh, yeah, it it is. And you know, it's all speculation right now. It's it's obvious it's definitely true, you know. Yeah. We, we know that our our I mean my ICU is is we we have COVID-19. We do have acute COVID patients, but most of those kids actually are have other chronic medical problems. Right. Um, so it's really in general not affecting perfectly healthy kids. Now, I have a question for you. Now, this is, again, I think this was a lot of speculation in the very beginning. And I only bring this up because, you know, my husband was sick right off the bat. Gosh, March 11th of last year. So he was like one of the first cases here in our state. And I remember just doing as much research as I could. You know, we didn't have any, we didn't have any, everything was speculation. Oh, I know. And so I remember coming across a few things that said, you know what, take melatonin. So my husband was taking melatonin. So we were like, you know, we were just throwing things at him. Yeah. <laughs> just trying yeah. to figure yeah. out what yeah. we could do, you know? Yeah. And yeah. I'm like, well, this is something it can't hurt, you know? So yeah. he started taking melatonin. And, and one of the connections I had seen was that children, especially, you know, as as soon as children are born, they're actually born with more melatonin than adults. And so as you grow older, and especially in the elderly population, you are so melatonin deficient. And that was why it was not just one of the very many reasons why it was affecting that population to such an extreme and that children were essentially left somewhat untouched. And I don't know if anything ever came of that, but I just remember reading it a year ago and being like, honey, take some melatonin. Yeah. No, <laughs> Have you heard anything about that? Yeah. You know, it's. I feel like the melatonin literature never really bore out, yeah. um, honestly. So it's, it's hard to say, but, you know, I do think you touch upon an important point that you know, I, I think along with the melatonin, people were suggesting taking, you know, a lot of vitamin D and vitamin C. And, you know, the vitamin D stuff really, um, what we realized is that it wasn't that you had to take massive amounts of vitamin D. It was that if you had a underlying vitamin D deficiency, which let's face it, most of us are vitamin D deficient, and then the pandemic, you know, exacerbated that. Right then yes, you should be taking vitamin D, but vitamin D and and a normal level is important for a healthy immune system to combat any illness. So, you know, I think I I say that because I think that the melatonin sort of hypothesis is similar, right? And you're absolutely right. You know, as we grow older, we have sort of lower levels of melatonin, but a lot of that also is behavioral. Like I'm sure my mel, I take melatonin every night because I know my melatonin. <laughs> right. Are right. Because I do, you know, just like you, I do weird shifts and, you know, yep. I, I don't sleep properly because I have a 10 month old, you know, all those fun little factors uh, play into um, sort of, I know I have weird melatonin. I, I just don't have good circadian rhythms. So I, I take it every night. So I think that the melatonin thing kind of, is maybe a consequence of our lifestyle. So I, I, you know, it's kind of the chicken and the egg thing. Is it, is it just that taking the melatonin helped sort of re-regulate the adult sleep and they were sleeping better and because they were sleeping better, they had more rest and recovery? 
So I don't think the melatonin in and of itself is maybe the thing that's helping. And maybe it is, you know, I can't say for certain, but just my sort of clinical judgment is that maybe it was just helping them sleep better and they were getting more of a chance to recover. Exactly. I just think there's so much uncharted territory oh, with for virus sure. still. I mean, I feel like we're just at the very, very tip of the end. I mean, we have so much more work to do. 100%. So I mean, even a year out, I still feel like we know. I feel like we know even less, right? Because yeah. it's it's so much has been revealed in the past year and, and so much research needs to be done on so many different levels. And it's just so interesting seeing it all play out. And I'm sure you see a lot of, you know, crazy things in your pediatric ICU. And then I'm in the ER and seeing all of these cardiac and pulmonary issues yeah. you know, weeks and months after. And it's like, wow, this is, you know, it's intense. It, it is intense. And, you know, we, because of the pandemic, our, our, Pick our pediatric ICU or PICU um, has been taking older patients to sort of mm. offload the local hospitals. And, you know, seeing those acute COVID patients, I mean, they end up staying in our ICU for such a long period of time. And it's just, it's, it's just, it's so sad. And, you know, they end up having to go to rehabilitation and um, they have tracheostomies, you know, it's just, I almost just wish that the people could see sort of how long, you know, people, and I know this is a little off topic, but, you know, it kind of hurts my heart when people talk about, oh, well, the mortality is low, quote unquote. Right. This is always my pet peeve. I mean, absolutely my pet peeve, you know, because, okay, so yeah, you might have lived, but you spent, you know, six weeks in the ICU and then you spent four weeks at rehab and now you have all of these COVID long hauler symptoms, which we just now got, you know, the okay to start doing research about that. But that is a serious thing. I mean, there are people that end up with myocarditis and then they end up having these lethal arrhythmias and then they end up with a pacemaker. I mean, do you think living with a pacemaker is ideal? I mean, I don't know. So, you know, again, these are these are more rare cases, but they're we don't know who they're going to affect. So I think that that's really something we need to be vigilant about, and just getting everybody vaccinated and just absolutely getting to that finish line. Yeah, no, <laughs> I'm with you, girl. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> All right, so let's move on to um, numbers, Doctor Patel. Let's talk about how many children are really getting diagnosed with COVID nineteen, and then how many of those children are being diagnosed with MISC. Absolutely. So, and these numbers are as of February 18th, just from probably the same article you read from the American Academy of Pediatrics. And so far, we have um, 3.1 million children that have tested positive for COVID-19 since the onset of the pandemic. Now, you know, I'm going to give that caveat again that, you know, we're not in a country that does widespread testing. So um, this number is most definitely an underestimate. And and you already mentioned that children are representing about 13% of the total cases right now. And I think it's important then to say these other numbers. So of patients that are hospitalized with COVID-19, children are representing between 1% and 3%. And, you know, I just want to say again that, yes, I know that these numbers sound low, but those numbers sort of are meaningless when it's your child in the hospital, when it's your child in the ICU. And I, the other number that is important is, so I talked about the 3.1 mil, million children that tested positive. Among those, 
up to 2% end up hospitalized. And is that with COVID or is that with MISC? With COVID. Okay. Okay. This is with um, acute COVID. Gotcha. And then among those kids with acute COVID, um, around 0.2% pass away or, or die. So thankfully, it's a very low number, but, you know, I just always have to, because I'm generally the person that's with those families when their children die, you know, I just, I don't want to minimize that number. Um, you right. know, it, 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 it hurts me when I see people say like, oh, it's, it's so low, they'll be fine because, you know, not only does it hurt me, I can't imagine if it was a parent seeing someone say that, um, right. if it was their children that that died. So I just, I just have to say that. Because, oh yeah, of course. You know, it's just, it's sad. And then, you know, I know our topic at hand is MISC and currently um, we have around 2000 reported cases of MISC and of those um, 30 deaths. Now that sounds like a really, really low number since I just told you that we've diagnosed about 3.1 million patients with COVID. Right. And I, I want to say this, that, you know, MISC, and we'll, we'll go into sort of what uh, MISC is, I'm sure, in a little bit, but MISC is a very complex clinical diagnosis. And what I mean by that is, you know, there isn't one test that tells us it's MISC. Mm-hmm. It's a ton of, a ton, I can't even, I, many, many, many laboratory tests, imaging, antibodies, et cetera, that go into making this diagnosis. And I think that's important to know because I think that this number is most definitely also an underestimate because you have to have a high index of suspicion and sort of experience with MISC to diagnose it. And I say that because, you know, I work at Children's National Hospital in DC and we were sort of one of the first hospitals to start reporting this um, syndrome. And we have actually diagnosed over 300 cases. Wow. So that's why I say this, this number has to be an underestimate because I live in DC. DC has not been one of those states that's had, you know, the most cases of COVID-19 by any means. So if we've had 300 cases of MISC, that means that there you know, other hospitals most definitely have seen it. They may have just not sort of had that right. high index of suspicion to diagnose it as MISC. Now, so they're reporting that there have been 2,000 cases since the start of the pandemic? Yes, but wow. you have to remember that we didn't even know what MISC was at right. the beginning of the pandemic. This was really, I think, I'm trying to remember when it was first starting to be diagnosed. I think it was over late spring, early summer when yeah. that was when we really started to to diagnose it and realize that it was a unique illness in kids as a consequence of COVID-19. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, I think, you know, there probably were many hospitals that were seeing kids with this, but they weren't exactly t- even tying it into COVID because a lot of these patients, like you said, are probably coming in and saying, no, we never had COVID. Yep. My kid never had COVID. So they weren't even probably thinking about this, right? Ab- I mean, absolutely. if they weren't educated on it straight off the bat, I mean, like, I can't even imagine. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So interesting. Yeah. Okay. So what is MISC and how can we be sure to detect it in our own children? The first thing I would like to say, and this is just my experience, is that most of my patients that I take care of with MISC, the parents say that my my child never had signs of COVID-19. 
you know, if people take anything away from this talk, it's that your kid does not have to manifest symptoms of COVID-19 to develop MISC. And just because family members don't, if there's, even if there's no known exposure to your kid, you know, I, I, I will say that you know, when I, whenever, you know, we obviously do a, a detailed history when our families come in with their kids and, you know, the, more often than not, the first thing they tell me is, but my kid doesn't go anywhere. So how did she ever get COVID and then get this MISC? And then, you know, we start probing a little more and I'm like, well, does who's coming into the house? And they're like, oh, no one. And I was like, well, has anyone visited? You know, I just have to keep asking those questions. They're like, well, my my daughter was visiting from college or, oh, you know, we have a nanny. And P.S., I have a nanny. So I'm not, this is by no means shaming anyone. It's more just to remind people that, you know, we all, I mean, this, we've all said this a million times, but, you know, you think your bubble is safe, but, you know, the truth is, Every single person you, you know, introduce into your home is probably exposed to other people and that, you know, so again, it's not to shame people because you know what, we have to live and, you know, I, just like you, I work, so I wouldn't be able to do that without my nanny, but, you know, I know that that's a, a measured risk. So, so anyways, back to your question. So, so generally two to three weeks after you know, exposure to COVID-19, kids are presenting with um, fevers. Generally, those fevers are lasting for several days. Um, you know, uh, one thing I didn't mention before is that MISC really grew from uh, other syndrome that we've been treating since the 1960s in pediatrics, which is called Kawasaki yes. disease. And, and MISC is very, um, has many symptoms similar to Kawasaki disease with some extra ones. So the ones that are similar to Kawasaki disease are fevers for five days. They often have a rash. They often have some swelling of their hands and their feet and often swelling it around their eyes. They have conjunctivitis, which is sort of just really red eyes. They often have, you know, we call it in medical terms, cervical lymphadenopathy. All that really is, is you'll start to feel lumps um, in your in your child's neck. And sometimes those lumps can be really, really big. And then what's unique about MISC um, compared to Kawasaki disease is we really saw that these kids were presenting with really profound belly pain. Hmm. And they often also presented with diarrhea and vomiting. And I mentioned that because, you know, when these kids were initially presenting, people thought that they had appendicitis because their belly pain and vomiting was so bad. And often their belly gets really big with fluid in, in their belly, which, you know, medically we call ascites. Mm-hmm. And then they'll have what's called an ileus. And all that means is that their intestines really aren't sort of squeezing and pushing the poop out. So Mm -hmm. that's what's really causing that vomiting. The other thing that is with MISC that's a little more unique is that their their body really starts to have what we call um, multi-organ involvement. And what that means is that many of their organs sort of get hurt. Um, so we, we see that lab tests um, show that their liver often gets a little bit damaged, their kidneys, sometimes their brains can get a little inflamed. 
And I know this all sounds really scary. So I do want to say that one great thing about MISC and Kawasaki is that it is generally very responsive to treatments. And the nice thing is that because we realized that MISC was really kind of a like Kawasaki, but sort of, um, you know, a, a much more acute, we started to use the treatments that we used for Kawasaki mm. in the past for MISC. And the great news is that Yes, these kids get very, very sick very quickly. But once we start those treatments, they generally turn around very quickly. And I do want to say, because I think it's important to know this, when I say they get very sick very quickly, they more often than not end up in the ICU with with me. And those kids end up on um, medications to help support their blood pressure because they can't maintain it Mm. themselves. Some of them end up needing a breathing tube because, you know, they're just, their body is just in such shock. So it, it's really not a mild illness, but the earlier we catch it, the, the better those treatments have of preventing them from getting super sick. Yeah. So, and, and then the other thing that I didn't mention is that their, their heart doesn't squeeze as strongly as it normally does. And in particular, they can have some, basically, some of the uh, vessels in their heart can get a little bigger than normal. Mm -hmm. Um, So we do monitor that very closely, and we make sure that all those kids are on aspirin to make sure that they don't develop any blood clots. So interesting. So if if I'm a mom listening to this, when am I taking my child to the emergency room? That is a great question. So... First of all, um, at the first sign of a fever right now, because we're in a global pandemic, I do think it is worthwhile to get tested for COVID. So that should be your first thing Mm -hmm. is, oh, my kid has a fever. Let me make sure she has doesn't have COVID because that just has important ramifications for quarantining and things Mm -hmm. like that. Now, a fever alone, I wouldn't necessarily just bring my kid to the ER. As I said, I would first get tested. Now, if you have, if your kid's having a fever and then you start to see a rash or diarrhea or they just aren't feeling well, that would be a time where I would call your pediatrician. Now, pediatricians have a really now across the country have a high index of suspicion for MISC. So as long as your kid is still eating and drinking, and is, you know, obviously they're sick, so they're not going to be fully themselves, but as long as they're able to walk and talk and do the things that they used to do, but they're just sort of acting a little sick, that would be a time to call your pediatrician and see them. Now, if your kid is getting sleepy, too sleepy, or they are not um, drinking the same amount of liquids, if they're not having, if they're wearing diapers, if they're not having the same number of wet diapers, or if you just notice that they're acting just listless Mm -hmm. um, with any of the symptoms I already talked about, that's when I would go to the ER first. You know, the the best cases are the ones where um, the parents really are working with their pediatrician and the pediatrician starts to send those labs and then they refer you to the ER. Because, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say that you need to rush to the ER if you just have a fever and rash. It's really if you're starting to see your child just not eating and drinking normally, they're not peeing the same number of times, or if they're vomiting, um, those would be signs and symptoms that I would tell you to go straight to the ER. Yes. 
But I think starting to work early, early when you start to have a fever rash, vomiting, or, you know, lymph nodes in your neck, things like that, um, working with your pediatrician um, and having them guide you when to go to the ER is really, in my sort of experience, those are the cases that we catch the earliest. And in general, it, it kids have symptoms for about a week before they end up in the ER. So, okay. so yeah, so it's, you generally have a little bit of time. So what does this rash look like? I know you mentioned that a couple of times. What are, what are we looking out for? Yeah, so it 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 can vary and that that's the hard part, mm. but it's what we call in, you know, in pediatrician terms like a maculopapular rash. Mm-hmm. And it just looks like red, large raised bumps. Sometimes it can look a little sandpapery. As I said before, you can get a little swelling and maybe redness of your palms and soles. So really, I would say just If there's any rash with a fever, um, that would be a time that you should call your pediatrician. I know pre-pandemic, you wouldn't necessarily call your pediatrician for Mm -hmm. a fever and rash. But if your kid does have both those things, it would be so good to go to your pediatrician and get some labs because really those labs will tell us if they're starting to manifest symptoms of MISC. Yes. Um, so how exact, what exactly are you guys, I know some, some of us might not completely understand your answer here, but I think it's important to talk about what exactly are you guys using to treat MISD? That's a great question. So our first line treatment is called IVIG and it's just intravenous immunoglobulin. And because we believe that MISC is basically this really profound immune response to a prior infection. What the IVIG does is it kind of goes into the kids' bodies and it quiets that immune response Mm -hmm. down. Some kids, they only need the IVIG. And one thing I'll mention is early in the pandemic, I feel like most of the kids, they just got the IVIG and they got better. And, you know, we were able to send them to the regular pediatric floor and then they'd go home. That has changed. Um, And now what I'm seeing more often than not is that they need the IVIG, but they're still on those medications to help their blood pressure. They just aren't able to maintain their own blood pressure. So then we go to some second line treatments. What are our second line treatment at Children's is Anakinra. And that is a a medication that attacks a specific, it's called IL-2. It's a a humor in your body, essentially, that is part of your inflammatory cascade. And then our third line treatment is um, a steroid. We use um, methylprednisone. So I think you can kind of surmise from all the medications I just mentioned that really all that they're doing is helping to sort of quiet that hyper immune response that's happening in your bo- in your child's body. Interesting. So does every child that I mean we might not even know this, does every child that has MISC end up in the hospital? Is the only way to reverse it to receive this IVIG? Yes. 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 Yeah. And I will say, and again, this is more earlier in the pandemic, not every single MISC kiddo ended up in the ICU. Unfortunately now, and you know, this, this is just me speculating, so I'm, there's no data on this, but I think that we're seeing some, I think these variants are potentially causing worse cases of MISC mm. because truly these kids are getting much, much sicker and most of them are ending up in the ICU first. 
that's the only thing I can think of. It's really been in the past month or two that we've, all of my colleagues and I, we've just noted that these MISC kids are just getting much, much sicker. So they're, they're all ending up in the ICU first in order to, to get control of it before we send them to the regular pediatric floor. Yeah. And I, you know, I was reading on um, the American Academy of Pediatrics this morning when I was looking up those numbers that they did report like over the last two weeks, well, this was a couple weeks ago. So from February 4th to February 18th, there was a 6% increase in the accumulated number of COVID, just the COVID cases in children. And so it seems like there is a slight increase in the numbers of children getting COVID, which of course would then lead to an increased number of, of course, MISC, I would imagine. Yeah. So that's definitely something I feel like we definitely need to watch and be vigilant about. So, so my child gets admitted for MISC. What, Mm -hmm. what can I expect? What does that admission look like? Okay. I love this question. I I think it's really important. So, okay. So you've come to the ER and you know, they, they have a high suspicion your child is MISC. What you're going to probably see in the ER is that they're going to give your child several, um, we call them boluses, several a large amount of fluid. And really that's just to help um, support your child's heart and blood pressure. And then they're going to get a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of labs, a lot, a lot of labs. And I know as now, you know, as a mother of a 10 month old, it is so hard to see your child poked to get blood work, and especially when it's a lot of blood work, but particularly when we're diagnosing MISC, it's it's really super, super important to get those labs because they tell us what organs we need to pay attention to. And it also tells us if it truly is MISC or not. Yes. So that's what you're going to see in the ER. Your child might get a little bit of oxygen by an, um, you know, a little cannula in their nose, and then they end up generally coming up to the ICU pretty pretty quickly to be honest. Once you're in the ICU, then, you know, it it just depends on how your particular kid is doing. So I'll I'll talk about sort of what I see the most often. You know, they they come up to us, we again will get a bunch of labs. We'll make sure that your child has, you know, at least two IVs just so that we can give your your kiddo all the medications that I just talked about, um, and also fluid. And then, you know, unfortunately, what we're seeing a couple hours into their admission to the ICU is more often than not, you know, we start the treatment with that IVIG quickly, but in the very beginning, often the blood pressure drops. So we end up needing to place what's called a central line. And what a central line is, is it's really just, it's like an IV, but it's much bigger and it goes into sort of the bigger vessels in your body. And that those are most often in kids in your neck or in their groin. And what that allows us to do is give medications to support their blood pressure. Because if we give those through a tiny IV in like their hand or their foot, it can often just hurt those vessels. Um, And that's why we like to give them into the big vessels in our body. So they have their central line. And then we often will place what's called an arterial line. um, And that often goes in their wrist or their foot. And what that arterial line allows us to do is get labs whenever we want without poking the kid. So that's a huge benefit to that. 
And the most important thing about that arterial line is it gives us a constant measure of their blood pressure. And that's really, that that's important because it helps us to titrate those other medications I just mentioned that we're giving to help support their blood pressure. So we put in all those, um, those lines in and we've started the IVIG. And in some kids, after we've given, they've completed their dose of IVIG, which does take several hours to go in. Um, I would, let's say they come in at 4 p.m. We've given their, got all those central line and arterial lines in. We've given them the IVIG. I'd say a subset of kids by the morning are off those medications to help their blood pressure. And we're good to send them to the regular pediatric floor for just, you know, one or two more days of monitoring before sending them home. Unfortunately, these days, what we're seeing is that after the IVIG, some of those kids are still, their heart rate is still really high. Um, We still are requiring medications to help their blood pressure. They're still having fevers. So it's at that point that we'd start that medication called Anakinra. And it's really after we start the anakinra that we see then after that, most kids are getting better. If they don't, then they need that steroid that I mentioned. And you're really looking at, at that point, several days in the ICU. So, you know, in the, in the easy cases, quote unquote, of MISC, they end up in the ICU for just one or two days. In the cases where they need the second or third line treatments for MISC, you're looking at, you know, a three to five, six day stay in the ICU. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't end there. Um, if we do do the anakinra, They end up having to go to the regular pediatric um, floor of the hospital where they um, need to be on that anakinra medication for sometimes one to two weeks because they need to wean it slowly and monitor all those organ functions to make sure that as they wean the medication, the treatment medication, that, you know, all their their numbers are improving as Mm -hmm. they do that. So unfortunately, for several kiddos, it's not a short stay in the hospital. It can be a couple weeks. Yeah. And then I I didn't mention that, you know, along with the medications and the acute treatments that we're doing, you're going to also see doctors and, you know, nurse practitioners and physician assistants from lots of other subspecialty services. Um, You know, in our hospital, we immediately consult the cardiology team so that we can get a good picture of the heart to make sure that it's functioning okay and that it doesn't have those sort of, I told you there was dilations or sort of swelling of some of the vessels in in the heart. Um, So we make sure that the heart's working well. You're going to see the infectious disease doctors. You're going to probably see some rheumatology doctors. So it's really a all hands on deck approach to make sure that um, we're really taking the best care of your child. Interesting. Thank you. I think this would be a great time to dive into the community questions. What do you think? Is there any? I would love to. I'm ready. Okay, cool. All right. So I think I, I saw this question come up a lot. So let's chat about it. Are there certain ages of children that are developing MISC or is it more like a widespread type of, of look to this? That is an excellent question. So I was mentioning Kawasaki disease before, and that really is preferentially affecting 
very young kids. So we're, we, we generally see that in children that are less than five years old. Um, now, Kawasaki disease, or sorry, MISC disease is different. So that is actually preferentially affecting kids between five and 14 years of age, although okay. we have seen it even in a couple older children. But that five to 14 age range is really where we're seeing most of the cases. Interesting. Yeah. So it, it is interesting, you know, we, and that part we don't fully understand, but it's definitely consistently in that age group. All right. So are children that have prior history of Kawasaki, for example, or autoimmune disorders or other, you know, medical history, are those children more susceptible to, ve- to de- develop MISC or can it really be anybody? Truthfully, it has not preferentially affected kids with underlying conditions. So unlike acute COVID disease in kids, which is Mm -hmm. absolutely affect, you know, the kids that end up with COVID in the hospital, those are really almost more often than not kids that have other medical conditions. But MISC is actually quite the opposite. We really are seeing it in perfectly, perfectly healthy kids. And that's kind of the scary part about it, you know, and it's the most common thing that parents say is that, you know, my kid's active and healthy, like how, how did this happen? And, you know, my, my response is that, you know, with, and this is sort of uh, growing from our knowledge of Kawasaki, we think Kawasaki happens because those kids have a genetic predisposition to it. We don't know where, where in their genome it's, that predisposition is coming from, but I suspect that MISC is the same where they have some tiny, teeny, tiny mutation that for whatever reason sets them up to develop MISC, but it's not associated with kids with autoimmune or any, anything else really. It's it's these healthy kids. Interesting. So I know we touched on this, um, but let's just kind of lay it out in a format that's really easy to digest. So Early and late symptoms to look out for. What are those early symptoms that we're looking for? I know you said fever, a little Mm -hmm. bit of fatigue, but not enough fatigue to be really worried. Any other early symptoms that your child might have that you're, you know, you're not really sure this might be MISC. This is more just a symptom that might also be with some other illnesses that we see in children. Yeah, that's a great question. And you actually hit the nail on the head. The most nonspecific, but at this, I would say the most common symptom is fever. And what I would tell parents, and this is hard, right? Because kids get fevers, you know, All they the get fever. <laughs> Although, you know, fortunately, because people are following good precautions, we haven't seen a lot of the uh, common respiratory um, illnesses. But the one thing that we have seen pretty commonly is still the common cold or rhinovirus. In fact, I had it (laughs) and my daughter had it. So, you know, we are still seeing that. So it's difficult. But what I would tell parents is that, you know, generally with the common cold, you have a fever for like one or two days and then it subsides. If you're seeing a fever, even in isolation without any other symptoms for longer than three days, and especially if you're hitting the five-day mark, that's when I would have a really high sort of, I'd be on high alert to wonder if this is MISC. And as I said, if you don't, even if you don't have any other symptoms, I would still call your pediatrician and, and go see them so that they can draw labs. Because those labs, even without any other symptoms, can be extraordinarily helpful to to know if this is MISC. Um, I would say the next most common symptom that starts to happen is that belly pain. 
and obviously a, a rash as well and yeah. some swelling around their eyes and hands and feet and all the other symptoms. But the most common and consistent is that fever for five days and, and belly pain. And then have you seen that the belly pain and the swelling that you see, is that something that, that kind of comes on like day four, five, six plus? I've, I've seen it more often, um, like after day five or six. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and that's why I say, you know, if, if they, even without those other symptoms, if they've had a fever for five days, because we aren't seeing like flu and those other things really that much right now, that would be a time when I I would really make sure that you go see your pediatrician and and start to get some lab tests. Now, I know we said that this really is, you know, a syndrome where your body is having this really significant immune response. But can you kind of tell our listeners what exactly is happening within the body? You know, there's, there's obviously, you know, a ton of inflammation happening. Can you kind of just describe like what's going on inside of there when, when children get this? Yeah. So, you know, we don't know exactly, especially with MISC, we don't know sort of which immune sort of things in your body are going out of whack. But I think the important thing for your listeners to know is that that sort of body immune, like overactive immune response seems to be targeting sort of medium-sized vessels in your body. Um, And that's important to know because that's why we have then sort of injury to to several different organs in your body, because we know that um, these medium-sized arteries or vessels in your body are feeding blood to those organs. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense then that that's why they have sort of all these nonspecific symptoms. And then we see in their lab results that, you know, their kidney numbers end up going Mm -hmm. up, their liver and um, numbers go up, and then obviously specific just inflammatory markers are sort of going out of whack. So now is that because these medium-sized vessels are just so inflamed and there's just not enough blood flow getting to those organs? That's part of it. It gets very leaky. So yeah. unfortunately, like like we see in sepsis, you know, your body just can't deliver the same amount of blood that's needed. Um, but I also think that just for some reason there we see that those humors in your body that help your blood clot go out of whack as well. So there can be some potential for like tiny little clots in the organs as well. And I do want to say, because I know this all probably sounds really scary to your listeners. I will say this, in my hospital, we have not lost any child to MISC. Obviously, I did tell you the numbers that some kids have unfortunately passed away from it. But I do want to say that even the organs that do take a a hit or, you know, they get hurt from MISC, they do recover. We have seen those organs recover and they recover much more quickly if we catch it earlier. earlier Yeah. And I I do think, I, I think this is such an important thing to talk about and for really every mother to listen to because, knowledge is, I always say this, knowledge is power. And the more you know for your child, the better. And while it sounds scary, you're now equipped to know what to look out for. And like you said, you had 300 cases of this and haven't lost somebody. And so 
you really need to be vigilant and you really need to know what to look out for, especially if we're seeing this a lot in, you know, asymptomatic cases of COVID. So it's one of those things where, I mean, I didn't even know that. I, I just assumed, you know, all oh, these were kids with maybe had, I actually know somebody um, that I went to high school with who just had put out this announcement that her child had had this MISC and was hospitalized for, for a very long time. And um, he's doing great now and all right. of that, but it's just, it's something that it's not talked about. And I think it's another one of those things where people are almost scared to talk about it. Well, I don't want yeah. to make anybody nervous or, you know, or, or prone, you know, women who are prone to anxiety, I don't want to give them more to worry about. And it's like, well, but we are their mothers and it is our responsibility to know what to look out for, for our children. And so absolutely, absolutely. I think that this is really great. And, and I think it's important to know what exactly is going on in those little bodies and trying exactly. to understand it. And it makes you feel like you're more in control, right? So if your yes. child does get admitted, well, you know what? I heard Dr. Patel talking about this and saying this is what's happening. And so you're just better prepared. And so I think this is all so awesome. I, I love that you said that because, you know, that is my sort of approach whenever I admit a kiddo into the ICU is that I tell the family and if the kid's old enough, I tell the kid too, look, this is what's happening now. And, you know, this is how I expect it to go. Um, and, you know, I tell them, and I tell them, you know, your child might need a breathing tube. I, I hope they don't, but they might, because I think the worst thing we can do is surprise somebody. Yeah. I, I don't think that's helpful. And I don't like scaring people either, but I also think it's important to prepare, you know, yes. because if, if you don't prepare yourself, then it, it, it's not helpful to anybody. Right. So, right. and it, exactly what you said, knowledge is power. And this is not a, we're not chatting to scare anyone. We're chatting to empower. Exactly. Empower. Yes. Yes. Love that. Okay. So next question, are there any known cases in infants? Have you, have you been seeing this in infants like under 12 months? Um, so in our hospital, we've only seen one. There have been scattered cases of, of very young kids, but it's really the absolute minority. Yeah. And you said ages 5 to 14 is really yeah. what we're looking at here. Yeah, exactly. So we might not know this yet either, but if your child ends up in the ICU with MISC, they rec- recover beautifully, they go home, are we seeing long-term effects in these children? That's a great question. So, so far, um, we are not. Now, the one thing that I I do want to mention is if your child does end up having MISC, the one thing um, that they will most definitely go home on is um, a medication. You know, I know your listeners will know this medication. It's aspirin. Mm-hmm. And the reason why they're going to go home on aspirin is because, um, and you know, this is a fortunate thing because we know this from Kawasaki disease. Um, I mentioned that you can get some dilation or I'm calling it swelling. It's not swelling, but I'm trying to explain it in a way that makes a little more sense. But essentially some of your arteries get a little bigger. And if they get bigger, they can be at risk of essentially getting clots in them. So that aspirin is to help sort of prevent that clotting from happening. Yeah. And I mentioned that because the other thing you should expect is that you will be followed very closely by a cardiologist after you're discharged because the one after effect that we we can potentially can see and this is really learning from Kawasaki disease is that 
that artery um, dilation or mm-hmm. swelling. Um, mm-hmm. And so they will be monitored for that. Um, more often than not, that that does recover as well. But that so far is the only sort of after effect that we are watching closely for because, again, we've seen it in Kawasaki and we've now started to see it in MISC too. And that's why we get, you know, the cardiologists involved from day one to start getting those pictures of the heart to look out for that. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. All right. So is there anything else you think that we need to cover? We can kind of do a little recap and then we'll dive into the last two questions. What do you think? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think we've covered everything. You know, I would say if you remember anything, it's that if your child has had a fever for, you know, five days, even in the absence of all the other symptoms that we discussed, I really want to make sure that you call your pediatrician. And ideally, you get seen by your pediatrician because, you know, the symptoms that I described, sometimes you need to know what they look like in order to identify them. And, you know, I think this is a coping mechanism. And I know this now as a sort of newish mother is that we try not to freak out with every little, you know, yes rash or change. Um, and I think that's important because good God, we drive ourselves like batshit crazy. Oh my God. All the time we, over here. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I am that person. So I'm saying this from experience. So, you know, I, I would really, really, really highly suggest if your kid has had a fever for you know, and you can even call them on day three and say, hey, my kid's having Mm -hmm. a fever. You know, I just want to make sure that we're not missing, missing something important. That would be my biggest takeaway from this, because I will say more often than not, when we tell the parents, hey, your child has lymph nodes in their neck, they're like, oh, gosh, I I didn't see that. Yeah. That's because you're not supposed to be examining your child, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's not your job to do a full exam on your child every day. Um, So, so yeah, so that, that's, I would say that would be my biggest takeaway. And, you know, I, I think from from what we've talked about with this fever, you know, a lot of these cases are just going to be just like you said, a simple fever and really nothing much else going on in those first couple of days. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of these other like rhinovirus and all these other things like the GI bug, all these other things are typically, you know, one or two days and done, or you have a runny nose and a cough and a fever. And so a lot of the times if you, you know, if your child's old enough to have a conversation, which if we're in that five to 14 range, typically we can, you know, chat with our children and see exactly what their symptoms are. Oh, mom, I've had a sore throat or, you know, something else going on. So a lot of the times I think you can, you can kind of nail it down. But yeah, like you said, on day, you know, day three, if they're still having a fever and there's nothing else to report and you're nervous, you just make an appointment with the pediatrician, bring exactly. them in and calm your nerves, have them, have them take a look and leave it up to them. And my husband and I, you know, and my husband's emergency medicine physician. And so the two of us together were sometimes really a terrible combination because <laughs> he's either like, you know, nothing to worry about or Lindsay, why didn't you do anything? I mean, I remember our, our five-year-old, she was in the bathroom and she fell off a stool. You know, she was washing yeah. her hands, fell off a stool. And I was like, okay, you know, you're fine. You're fine. She's hysterical. She's screaming, but she's, you know, my very expressive child. So I said, okay, let's just rest on the couch. She falls asleep on the couch, which, you know, you and I probably know. It's a really know. bad sign. Really bad sign. You know, your, your child's so, you know, she was so upset that she literally cried herself into a nap. Of and course. then my husband gets home and he's like, 
well, Lindsay, she probably actually broke her arm. She's, she, she, she's on the couch. Oh. She's so and so, you know, the next day, sure enough, we brought her in. Her arm's broken. Oh, but, no. you know, it, but it's one of those things where, you know, you're, you're in, you're in medicine and you don't want to overreact and you don't want to bring totally them in true. for nothing. But then at the same time, you don't want to underreact. It's just a very difficult <laughs> it's, you know, it's so difficult. You hit the nail on the head because, you know, we're in sort of in areas of medicine, like you being in the ER and me being in the ICU, where we're trained to detect sick, like yeah, really, emergency. <laughs> right? But we also see those like totally healthy kids that end up like they fell over and then they have cancer, right? right. So it's like there, there's a balance between not jumping to our own kids of saying like, hey, oh, nope, they fell over, they have cancer or, you know, un- it's just, it's such a, it's an impossible balance. I call it an impossible balance because, and I will, I just have to share this story because it's so absurd. When my child was, I think she was like three or four weeks old and me being sort of the the new mom, I was like, oh, her nails are long. We have to cut them. And instead of using a nail file, I use a nail clipper. And of course, I nicked her skin. And then she bled for 30 minutes. And my husband is not in medicine. He's a human rights lawyer. And I looked at him and I was like, she has a coagulation problem. She's still <laughs> bleeding. We need to take her to the ER. And my non-medical husband was like, I think she's okay. <laughs> <laughs> And of course she was fine, but like I put on my ICU doctor hat quickly and I was like, nope, she hasn't stopped bleeding. She's got a serious quiet, like problem, clotting problem and we need to take her in, you know? So it's just, there's just, I don't know how to find it. There's no rhyme or reason. There really isn't. There's there's no no rhyme rhyme or reason. reason. And and that's why you don't treat your own children too, right? Because like you don't have the same, it's just, there's too many emotions involved. Yeah. And that's where the blurry line is. Honestly, like I have no problem treating someone else's children. Of course. Of course me when too. When it comes me to my too. own children, I'm like, wait, what, 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 what's going on? Oh, oh I, I, yeah. I'm like, go get my husband. Yep. No, I, I am, I am exact. I, I honestly, I text my pediatrician friends anytime. I yeah. truly do because I know I don't, I don't have any I don't have any sense, but I'm the same as you. Like I tell them, you know, all my friends text me all the time and I, I love it. You know, I'm like, yeah, oh, you should text me. I'm your friend. You know, like, so anyways, it's yeah. just, it's just, it's crazy. It is. It is. It's a crazy town. Okay. So I'm going to dive into the last two questions, which are questions I ask every interviewee on the podcast. And so the first question is, so you're obviously a newish mom with a 10 month old. I am definitely a newish mom. If you could give moms one tip, it could be about anything at all. What would it be? My biggest tip, and you know, especially because, you know, you and I are pretty active on social media my biggest tip that I had to learn the hard way is that I'll, I'm going to use baby led weaning as an example, because this is something that I really struggled with is mm-hmm. that, you know, you see everyone on Instagram doing baby led weaning and I being the ICU doctor, I was totally freaked out. I was like, my child's going to choke. Yeah, <laughs> And, you know, so in the beginning I was doing purees and I felt such intense guilt that I wasn't doing what, you know, what I thought all the good moms were doing, which was baby led weaning. And, you know, eventually I realized she was okay and I could give her some soft solids, but like the amount of like heartache and guilt and like, 
and I didn't have the time to read all the books on the baby. Yeah. You know, I just didn't have the time to do all that stuff. And I made myself feel like a bad mom because I didn't have the time to read the books and I wasn't yeah. doing what I thought everyone else was supposed to be doing, you know, what I was supposed to be doing. And you know what? My child is eating just fine now and she's great and she's healthy. And I really realized like she, Sita, my child is loved. And she is healthy and happy, and that is all that matters. And it doesn't matter if you do, you know, whatever trend. And I'm not actually, I love baby led weeding now. I think it's great. So I'm not poo pooing that. I'm just saying, you know, using an example of something that I thought that I was just a horrible mom for not doing that. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, same with sleep training. I didn't do that until a little later. I finally did it. You know, it's just all those little things. I, I just had so much guilt. And so the biggest piece of advice is just know that as long as your child is loved and happy, you're, you're, you're killing it. Like yes, that's, I that's love a that. sign that you're killing it, no, right? I really and, love that. I do. So yeah, I just, it's been, it's been a roller coaster. <laughs> it is. And I totally agree with you where, I mean, I took the entire month of, of January off because Instagram, quite frankly, is like, I, I, I saw just, you did that. Oh, I saw, and I, yeah. I've done that many times. Yeah. The break is, the break is so incredibly necessary, but I can't even imagine because, so I use, I obviously use it more to produce content than I do to ingest um, information. And I, I very rarely scroll maybe like once or twice a week I'll scroll. But a lot of the time I'm just on there like constantly trying to produce content. Yep. And I can't imagine being a consumer of it on a daily basis. And then, you know, going to one mom and being like, oh, look at her. She's doing this with her baby. And then going to the next one. Oh, look at her. She's doing this. I must need to do that with my baby. And so I, I've just been encouraging people to kind of get off of there more if they can, just because it's like, there is so much information and you feel like you are being a bad mother because you're not implementing all of these different things that everybody else is doing. And so finally, I mean, it took me four babies and people are constantly like, well, what are you doing as far as feeding her solids? And it's, it's such a simple answer. It's whatever the F is in my fridge, like really and truly, like I do not think twice. I do a combination of purees, baby led wean. It's whatever I have. If I have something that's soft, solid, I'll do that. If I don't, I make a puree. If I, so it's like, there is no right answer. It's just whatever you feel comfortable doing. And, you know, like whatever your baby seems to be liking, I mean, who cares about whatever. And so that's what I think social media is very powerful and that it can give people a lot of of, of great information. Of course, the contrast to that is that it gives people a lot of misinformation, but we exactly. won't go there. We won't go there. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. but there's, yeah. there's really good that comes of it. Like, um, and you know, so I, I don't want to, you know, like you said, like poo poo it, but it's just, it's one of those things that really needs a balance. And I really like that you said that because really all that matters at the end of the day is that baby is loved and you feel like a good mom because you're just following your gut and that's it. Exactly. And it doesn't matter if you're first time mom or sixth, sixth time mom, it's just go with your gut and do what yeah. you think is right yeah. for your own I, child. You know, no one else is the mother to your child. So I think that's exactly. great. And then the last question is what is your favorite dinner? Ooh. that you could even feed your 10 month old as well. Like you could chop it up or what, what have you, or put it into like the, the blender and chop Ooh. it up. For her. I like this question. It's, this is, this is a big, well, so one of my favorite dinners is um, I make this like Indian curry salmon and, you know, my child is definitely, even though she's my husband's uh, 
Caucasian and I'm I'm Indian, but mm-hmm. she is definitely like a spicy Indian baby because she <laughs> loves, loves, loves spices. So we make sure to make that salmon once a week because like my husband and I absolutely love it. And she just will, she's, I will say she's on the pickier side of mm-hmm. an eater, but the salmon, she will eat until the cows come home. Oh, and so I'm going to do two just because, you know, whatever. And pancakes are also, I mean, I eat pancakes for dinner and she loves loves pancakes too. So yeah, yeah, I love it. I love it. So those are our two favorites for sure. That's awesome. I'm going to have I don't know if you have a recipe available, but if you do, I would love to put it in the show notes. Oh, um, sure. For your absolutely. Salmon. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That would be awesome. All right, so that's that's the end of it. I'm so so excited that you came on. I think this, this is, is going so to be fun. so helpful for moms. And not even just moms, but, you know, childcare um, providers in general and just the the public just knowing more about this and giving them all the resources and knowledge that they need to make good decisions. Well, I'm really grateful for you. I'm grateful I found your Instagram page. It's just, you know, it's right up my alley because you really show real motherhood. And I try to do that, too, because I just... Yeah, it's like a whole like less guilt, more life. You oh, know, yeah. let's just all live. A hundred percent. All right. Well, thank you so much. We are so excited. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.